This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 13, What is to be Done? Look down from heaven, and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, and the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. Isaiah 63, 15-18 For three centuries the enemies of God have steadily gained control over the sanctuaries in church, state, and culture. They have been invited inside the gates, not as conquerors, but as colleagues and fellow heirs of the kingdom's promises. But now they have begun visibly trampling on the sanctuaries. Slowly, very slowly, a small contingent of the true heirs of God's kingdom have begun to perceive the nature of the problem, but they have no idea what the solutions may be. The solutions begin with straight thinking. The solutions are more than intellectual. They are moral and institutional. But we must begin with straight thinking. It does no good to begin to make needed repairs if we have no repair manual. But we have this manual. Unfortunately, today's church rejects five-sixths of it or more as no longer operational. Here are three conclusions that I hope this book has proven. First, theology is not a rarefied, intellectual exercise that can be safely contained inside the four walls of a church building. Second, biblical theology is applied theology. Third, by their fruits are we to distinguish competing theologies. One of the most neglected fruits of theology in the history of the church has been social theory. There are many reasons for this. First, as I have attempted to show in this book, there has been a commitment to millennial views that deny the very possibility of the expansion of God's institutional kingdom in history. Christians have denied that kingdom means civilization, at least with respect to God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not acknowledged as a civilization, even though Satan's kingdom is freely acknowledged as a civilization. Second, there has been a denial of God's predictable sanctions in history either applied directly by God or representatively by his covenant people. Third, there has been a denial of covenant law in the New Testament era. To remove biblical law from eschatology is to castrate the kingdom of God. Without biblical law, the idea of God's predictable sanctions in history inevitably disappears. The rule is this, no law, no sanctions. More to the point, no written law, no predictable sanctions. Each millennial view requires a particular concept of God's sanctions in history. Deny that God brings predictable positive and negative sanctions in history, sanctions that are governed by the terms of his Bible-revealed law, 
and you deliver Christians into the hands of covenant-breakers. Either you argue, as premillennialists and amillennialists do, that the effects of the gospel will not be culture-transforming, or else you wind up as non-theonomic postmillennialists have, incapable of specifying the judicial conditions by which we can correctly evaluate the coming of God's millennial blessings. Without a biblical judicial theology, the New Age millennium and or the New World Order could not be distinguished from God's age of millennial blessings. Neither pessimillennialism nor pietistic postmillennialism can provide the theological foundation for the establishment of God's kingdom in history. Then what is the alternative? Two practical questions. In 1902, Lenin wrote a book with a question for its title, What is to be done? Forty years earlier, that same title had been chosen by the radical Chernyshevsky for a novel that he began writing upon his imprisonment in the Peter and Paul Fortress. His book had become a favorite of Lenin's revolutionary older brother, who attempted to assassinate the Tsar and was lawfully executed. It then became a favorite of Lenin's. But Lenin did not write a novel. He wrote a revolutionary manifesto. This was to become the most important of his works. It was subtitled, Burning Questions of Our Movement. Things burned for Lenin. His newspaper was called The Spark, Iskra. As James Billington says, there was fire in the minds of men. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer also wrote a book with a question for a title, How Should We Then Live? This is the burning question of our movement, Christianity. This burning is different from the radicals' burning. Ours is fire initiated by the Spirit of God, man's only alternative to the consuming fire of final judgment. Revelation 20:14-15. Schaefer did not answer his own question. His book does not even attempt to do so. It is merely a brief popular history of Western culture. It surveys the rise of authoritarianism, tells us that we must speak out against it, warns us that we may well be executed for doing so, and offers no alternative political program. He suggested no specific, concrete, and Bible-based, comprehensive ethical system. Lenin, in contrast, did answer his question, but his answers are now exposed to all mankind as productive of political tyranny and economic poverty. Leninism is just one more version of the power religion, one more attempt to build Babylon's empire, the god that fails. So, what is to be done by all those who call themselves Christians? What do they do as individuals, as I hope to show, matters far less than what they do as members of the church? I begin with a presupposition. The church is primary. Anyone who does not accept this premise will not appreciate this chapter. The family is important. The state is important. Neither one is even remotely as important as the church. A loss of authority. In the Washington Times, July 25, 1990, columnist Georgie Ann Geyer warns of a new threat to America, a national criminal gang structure that will soon rival the mafia. Some 100,000 youths in Los Angeles County have already joined 900 of these violent criminal gangs. They are now spreading out across the nation. Highly disciplined, it is almost impossible for the police to penetrate them. 
These gangs command unqualified loyalty from their members. They have become substitute families. Captain Raymond Gott of the L.A. Sheriff's Department says, quote, One of my concerns, particularly in high gang areas, is that parents totally abdicate parental responsibility, and they've given it to anyone who will pick it up, unquote. The problem, Geyer speculates, is a breakdown of authority. Quote, but the core of this problem seems to me to be simple in analysis and difficult in execution. We have become a society that refuses to socialize or acculturate its young because we have degraded all authority, and these far-out gangs symbolize the failure in stark terms that should warn us of larger reverberations. End quote. How can Christians successfully bring the gospel to gang members and thereby undermine the gangs? In part, this is an organizational and tactical question, but more fundamentally, it is theoretical and strategic. It must be answered, and answered correctly, very soon. The price of our failure will be high. First and foremost, what message should we bring? It must include an appeal to the misdirected sense of loyalty that these gangs are able to call forth from their members. The Church of Jesus Christ must be presented as a valid institutional option, one with a better authority structure than the gangs can offer. We can't beat something with nothing. Yet the institutional church today neither calls for such loyalty nor expects it. Churches do not honor each other's excommunications, nor do they expect their own excommunications to carry weight either on earth or in eternity. Their impotent sanctions and lack of respect for other churches' sanctions reflects this lack of any real authority today. Churches have little sense of authority, so they cannot compete effectively with organizations that do possess this sense, whether gangs, cults, or secret societies. There is a scene in the movie Beckett where Thomas Beckett, the late 12th century Archbishop of Canterbury, is confronted by some of the king's officers who have been sent by the king to arrest him. Becket draws a circle around himself and announces, The man who crosses this line will have his soul condemned to hell. Not one of them dares to cross. Today's Archbishop of Canterbury may not even believe in hell. Surely some of his recent predecessors haven't, and most of those prelates under his authority do not. The Church no longer commands the respect due to an agency that represents God in history. God's sanctions are not taken seriously, so why should the Church's authority be taken seriously? The Church, by not taking itself very seriously, is not taken seriously by anyone else. The West's churches suffer from a distinct disadvantage. Behind the Iron Curtain, churches are beginning to recognize the power they possess to affect history. This realization has not yet penetrated the Western churches. Evangelism, therefore, suffers. If this self-imposed cultural and judicial impotence of the churches continues, their members are going to suffer persecution. The equal time for Satan rhetoric of the political pluralists is rapidly becoming no time for Jesus in every public institution. Meanwhile, every institution is steadily being redefined by the messianic state either as inherently public or else under no other jurisdiction than the state. The Prophesied Revival For well over a decade, I have heard major church and parachurch leaders predicting that there will be soon a great worldwide revival. 
So, where are their recommended plans to accommodate this revival? Nobody has one. Leaders make these glowing prophecies with all the confidence that they predict the imminent rapture. Yet, they do not restructure their lives, debts, and retirement investment portfolios in terms of an imminent rapture. Why not? Because they do not really believe in an imminent rapture. If you believe that something is going to take place, you plan for it. You take steps to finance your plan. If you do not plan for it and begin to execute the plan, you simply do not believe it. It is just one option among many, and not one very high on your list of probabilities. Here is my premise. If God-honoring social change comes to this nation and then to the world, or vice versa, it must come through the institutional church with its sacraments and discipline. What is this discipline? The threat of excommunication, keeping people away from the communion table. To enforce its discipline, it must close communion to all non-Christians and Christians under church sanctions. The church is primary. The church, alone among human institutions, survives the final judgment intact. God-honoring social change will not come primarily through Christian education, Christian publishing, or Christian television networks. The church will use all of these tools. They will not be allowed by God to use the church unless he is bringing it under judgment. Whatever happens, it is the church that will bear the brunt of the responsibility. So, we do not need to be geniuses to conclude that one of four things must take place. 1. The revival will reshape the church unexpectedly and totally when it hits. 2. The church will prepare for it well in advance. 3. The church will prepare, but the revival will not come. 4. The church will not prepare, therefore the revival will not come. The fourth possibility is the chilling one. For that failure, we will be held accountable. I think it is time to begin thinking about the kinds of institutional changes that a worldwide revival would probably force upon the church. We should now begin to make plans for these preliminary changes so that when it comes, we will not be caught flat-footed. My bet, the church will be caught flat-footed. Satan wins by God's default. Maybe God does not intend to send a revival. Maybe we are dealing with a God who calls men to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28, and then gives them Western technology that enables them to meet this requirement. This brings over five billion people into the world, still growing, nine-tenths of whom, minimum, will spend eternity in hell in the lake of fire if no revival comes. The longer this rate of population increase continues, the smaller the percentage of Christians at present growth rates. This is the population bomb, not physical starvation but spiritual starvation. High temperature physical starvation will follow, however. God's negative sanctions beyond history. Covenant breakers will move into eternity just as they lived covenantally dead. There is only one escape, saving faith. To win this cosmic war, Satan merely has to see to it that no revival comes. What specifically does he have to do? Nothing. He can retain the covenantal allegiance of the vast majority of men merely by standing pat. People are automatically born into his covenantal kingdom. They are lost by default because of Adam's rebellion. God therefore has to act positively in order to win the souls of men. Satan doesn't. He can win by remaining passive. 
just so long as God refuses to send the Holy Spirit to bring his irresistible grace in history. Satan wins by God's default. So here is the choice of agendas. A God who wins in history by sending grace by his Spirit, or a God who loses in history by standing pat. If nothing changes, the mere birth rate differentials between the saved and the lost will guarantee the triumph of Satan's kingdom in history. Add up the populations of China, India, and the Islamic world. Toss in most of Latin America. Toss in Europe. Don't forget New York City, Los Angeles County, and San Francisco. What do the numbers tell us? Christianity is losing. Continuity means historical defeat for God's kingdom in history. Amillennialism teaches that this is all we can legitimately expect. Premillennialism teaches that Christ's coming earthly kingdom will be marked only by the outward obedience of men. Premillennialism does not teach that most people will be converted to saving faith in Christ. In fact, given the Arminian views of most premillennialists, they cannot possibly assert that the coming of the earthly kingdom will automatically lead to mass revival. Some, like Dave Hunt, say specifically that the hearts of most men will not be changed, and that in this sense the millennial earthly reign of Christ should not be equated with the kingdom of God. Then where are we? More to the point, where are they? Five billion souls are here. We cannot send them back. The question is, are they going to perish eternally by the billions? Are we living in the most horrible period in man's history, when hell starts filling up in earnest? World population keeps growing. Will we live to see ten billion people ready for eternal fire? Will we not see a great harvest? What is to be done? The Post-Millennial Hope I prefer to believe that in the coming millennium, the seventh since creation, God is going to send his Holy Spirit. I cannot be sure, but it seems to me that this is the way God works. I think this will happen fairly soon. If it doesn't, then Satan will be able to boast, They obeyed your rule, Genesis 1.28, and therefore I will spend eternity with vastly more souls. The multiplication of mankind minus the saving work of the Holy Spirit means the overwhelming defeat of God's gospel and his church in history. This is not prophecy. This is simply applied covenant theology. You do not need a degree in theology to figure this out. A handheld calculator is sufficient. I do not tell God what to do. I do make strong suggestions to him from time to time. My number one suggestion today is, don't sit on your hands too much longer. Otherwise, people's faithfulness to the external terms of the Dominion Covenant, their multiplication, will become Satan's most successful jiu-jitsu operation against you in history. I think the long-predicted but institutionally unexpected revival is imminent. Psychologically, I have to think this way. It is the only way I can see for God not to be defeated in history by the very success of the world's population in meeting the requirements of God's biological command to be fruitful and multiply. I do not choose to believe in the historic victory of Satan as a direct result of people's obedience to the external demographic requirement of God's law. I choose instead to believe in a coming historical discontinuity, mass revival, the Mindset of Critics Non-Christians may be surprised to learn how hostile most Christians are to such a view of God's work in history. In his scathing attack on Christian Reconstruction, Dr. Masters, 
the heir of Calvinist Charles Spurgeon, who now occupies the pulpit of London's Metropolitan Tabernacle, has this to say about people who believe that God will save the souls of large numbers of people in our day. He is visibly contemptuous of those who foresee a future outpouring of God's salvation. Quote, Even now this restoration is underway, or so they believe. After 1900 years of marking time or edging forward at a snail's pace, the kingdom of God is now back on the march, heading toward a season of spectacular evangelism and social dominion. End quote. Notice the tone of this remark. Anyone who believes in a discontinuous breakthrough of the Holy Spirit in history is supposedly naive in the ways of God. Masters points to the slow movement of the gospel in history, but he also assumes that this is normative throughout history. There is no question that for the billions of people now alive ever to be saved, it will take a monumental, historically unprecedented move of the Holy Spirit. But so adamant are the critics of postmillennialism that nothing like this can ever take place that they hope heap ridicule on those who sincerely believe that God may not necessarily have as his eternal decree the destruction of today's billions of lost souls. The more Calvinistic these critics, the more contemptuous their dismissal of these billions. If these lost souls were converted, this would verify postmillennialism. The critics would rather see them perish. There is no eschatological neutrality. Let us recognize the unstated mental assumption that must be in the mind of anyone who calls himself a Calvinist, yet who ridicules the idea of a discontinuous break into history by the Holy Spirit. These five billion people are lost. They're going to stay lost. They therefore deserve to stay lost. And anyone who says anything different is a postmillennial utopian. I am indeed. My concern is with evangelism. I am not willing to write off automatically prophetically, the souls of five-plus billion people. God has this prerogative. I do not. Again, let me say it as plainly as I can. My hostility to amillennialism and premillennialism is not based on my disagreements with their interpretations of this or that verse in Scripture. Good men have disagreed for a long time over the proper interpretation of Bible verses. My hostility is to the mindset that has to underlie any Calvinist who says that God will not move large numbers of souls into his kingdom at some point in history. He is saying, in no uncertain terms, to hell with the whole world. I'm in the book of life, and that's what counts for me. It is a bad attitude, but it underlies all pessimillennial Calvinism. The Arminian pessimillennialists have an excuse— they do not believe in God's irresistible grace. But the Calvinist who thinks in pessimillennial terms has necessarily adopted an elitist attitude, a world in which he assumes, and sometimes even says publicly, that God will not fill up heaven with the people of my generation, but I've got mine. My attitude is different. I think, O oh God, if you are willing to let me in, why don't you let billions in? It's no more difficult for you to let five billion more in than to let me in. I can pray in confidence that God might do this in my day because I know he will do it someday. Pessimillennialists do not pray for the conversion of the world with my degree of confidence. Even those Presbyterian elders who take a public oath that they do believe in their Westminster Larger Catechism. Answer 191.
Deflecting Evangelism The rapture could solve one aspect of the evangelism problem, of course. The post-rapture millennium would get the message of personal salvation to the lost, though it would not necessarily get them saved. A top-down political bureaucracy run by Christians is hardly the equivalent of widespread personal regeneration. Most dispensationalists say that they believe the rapture is imminent. Fair enough, but then they should not keep predicting the imminent revival. The imminent rapture is the alternative to the imminent revival, not its means. If Jesus is coming to set up an earthly kingdom, then the revival, if it actually occurs, will be a post-church age phenomenon. The Christians who are on earth today will not be here to see it, promote it, or respond to it. We will be in heaven, or wherever it is that the raptured church will be sent for cosmic rest and recreation. Institutionally, theologically, and emotionally, an appeal to the imminence of the rapture is the removal from the church of any responsibility for preparing for a great revival. Such a revival cannot be prepared for today. It is a post-rapture event. If you wonder what I have most against premillennialism, this is it. By its very nature, it keeps Christians from praying about, planning for, and then financing the worldwide event that could overturn Satan's kingdom in the very period in which he expects to capture six to ten billion souls. A vision of a post-rapture revival motivates Christians to do little more than the equivalent of passing out gospel tracts. It does not prepare them for serious results from their evangelism. It is evangelism for an elite, those few who will be raptured out of history. It is lifeboat evangelism, not save the whole passenger list, let alone the crew and the ship evangelism. It is evangelism that explicitly assumes to hell with the whole world on this side of the rapture. The premillennialist can always say that he is praying for the only discontinuous event, cosmic, that can conceivably allow the gospel to spread across the world in time. Even though Christ's millennial rule will not guarantee the widespread conversion of men, we are told, correctly, that it can at least guarantee that everyone on earth will hear the gospel. But the problem of the need for a discontinuous move by the Holy Spirit in history is not evaded by an appeal to the premillennial version of the millennium. Why does the Holy Spirit need a cosmic discontinuity in order to achieve his work? He still must impose his historic discontinuity. This is the great discontinuity, not the cosmic transformation. But modern Christians are hypnotized by the thought of a cosmic discontinuity. They forget that their own conversion to saving faith was a far greater discontinuity than the second coming of Christ. They do not recognize how great a salvation they possess. It is too common for them. They do not psychologically recognize the magnitude of man's sin and the magnitude of God's grace in history. They may say they do, but they have not integrated this into their thinking. If this eschatology is wrong, then it necessarily deflects our concern for evangelism from the church age, where we are responsible to a non-existent, post-rapture, bureaucratic, millennial age, for which we are not in any way responsible, and to which we can contribute very little except writing handbooks for millennial civil government, which premillennialists do not choose to write. Here is the problem. The Great Commission was given to the Church, not to an international army of Christian civil bureaucrats with headquarters in Jerusalem. The Turning Point I think history is coming to a head. 
I believe in the 6,000-year-old earth. I believe in a millennium of visible worldwide covenantal blessings. I believe in the Sabbath. I believe in the Sabbath millennium. But these chronological and symbolic biblical references do not weigh heavily upon me. If I turn out to be wrong, my embarrassment will be posthumous. I can live with that. What weighs upon me is not prophecy, rather it is the inescapable reality of today's worldwide population. God will lose six to ten billion souls over the next seventy-five years if the revival does not come. Apart from revival, the only thing that could change these numbers is some sort of demographic catastrophe. This does nothing eternally positive for the billions who are already here. What is to be done? The Traditional Consequences of Revivals North America has had two great revivals, the First Great Awakening, 1735-55, to and the Second Great Awakening, 1800-1850. to There have been similar revivals elsewhere, notably the Welsh revival at the turn of this century. They had common features. The main feature that they all shared is that they did not produce Christian societies. Consider the two great awakenings in North America. They shared the following common features. First, a downgrading of theology. The New Light preachers were rarely theologians. More often than not, they were untrained, itinerant preachers who had no biblical doctrine of the institutional church. If they had possessed a biblical doctrine of the institutional church, they would not have been itinerant preachers. Second, a downgrading of church discipline. The New Light preachers emphasized the experiential moment, not the hard work of a lifetime of service. The churches, to a great extent, were uncooperative with these wandering outsiders, and they suffered the consequences. Church splits, attacks from revived saints, and the creation of lowest common denominator rival congregations. Third, a wave of sexual debauchery. The rise of illegitimate births nine months after a local revival was noted by observers during both Great Awakenings, and modern historians have confirmed this statistical relationship. Fourth, the subsequent falling away of many. The heat of the moment cooled. The converts left the churches. These people could not be called to repentance. This phenomenon led to what were called the burned-over districts by Charles Finney, who had personally burned over many of them. Fifth, the rise of political liberalism and non-Christian social transformation. The First Great Awakening led to the American Revolution and then to the Unitarian Masonic Federal Constitution, with its abolition of Christian oaths of office, Article 6, Section 3. The Second Great Awakening led to abolitionism as the primary focus of Christian political action, and then to the Unitarian-led Civil War, 1861-65. American Christianity split in the decades after the war. A worldly social gospel paralleled by an escalating pietist fundamentalist retreat from all social and political concerns. Common ground, anti-credal, religious experientialism leads to common ground, neutral, ethics, and common ground, humanistic politics. A lot of people got saved. American society didn't. The unique period of widespread conversions did not last. Not many people got saved after 1860. God expects more than this from revivals. The Transfer of Cultural Authority 
the two great revivals of the American past led to a transfer of cultural authority from Orthodox Christians to Unitarians and then to Humanists. The First Great Awakening broke the civil authority of the older Calvinistic Holy Commonwealths of New England. Then the Civil War broke the cultural authority of Arminian Christianity. The parallel rise of the social gospel movement and dispensational pietism delivered the nation into the hands of the humanists. Why did this occur? Because the revivals promoted the lowest common denominators, theologically, ecclesiastically, judicially, and emotionally. There was no vision of a holy commonwealth in the preaching of the revivalists. Everything was focused on gaining from individuals a one-time profession of faith by whatever means. The revival meetings were like medieval fairs. Everyone came. The unconverted masses came mostly for excitement, secondarily for entertainment, and only belatedly for a religious conversion. The revivalists gave them what they wanted. The pastors surely couldn't and still remain faithful to God. There was an ecclesiastical transfer of authority after 1800. The waves of revival spread westward, just as the population had. The mainland denominations did not move fast enough, except for the Cumberland Presbyterians, who were not very Calvinistic and did not require advanced academic degrees for their pastors. The old saw goes like this. The Baptist evangelists walked into the west, the Methodists rode on horseback, the Presbyterians went by covered wagon, and the Episcopalians waited for regularly scheduled train service. The Congregationalists stayed home. The more rigorous the academic requirements to serve as a pastor, the slower the comparative growth of the denomination during the revival. Presbyterians, New England Congregationalists, and Episcopalians, who had been the dominant influences as late as 1790, were dwarfed by the Baptists and Methodists during the next half-century. The pietism of these new churches was uniquely suited to the humanist demand that Christians, as Christians, withdraw from public life over the next century and a half. Except for one doomed crusade, Prohibition, nothing of a social or political nature motivated these groups after World War I. Only with the Supreme Court's legalization of abortion has a small minority of these groups usually laymen and especially lay women, begun to re-enter American political life. Only with the accelerating reduction of the lowest common denominator of American public morality have a few Christians begun to challenge the establishment's humanist elite, which now has a huge majority of public school graduates, meaning a growing army of functional illiterates, solidly behind it. What we have seen in past revivals does not inspire optimism about future revivals, the revivalism of the past has been antinomian to the core. Without exception, the great revivals have accelerated the drift into secularism by separating personal conversion from biblical law. This antinomianism has undermined church, family, and state. In short, revivalism has never been covenantal. It has always been individualistic. It has undermined the primary covenantal institution, the church, and from there it has undermined everything else. Revivalism has invariably transferred authority away from the existing church order, yet always in the name of Christianity. So, what is to be done? From Apprenticeship to Seminary We have adopted a bureaucratic standard for pastoral training, one modeled by the university system, the Theological Seminary. 
The university is a failed Christian experiment. It is an institution which was invented by Christians, but which has without exception in over eight centuries led to institutional surrender to the humanists. Not one major university has retained its Christian roots. Without exception, colleges and universities have fallen to the humanists within a few generations. The history of the university has been a history of unrelieved theological failure. Yet churches have almost universally adopted the certification system designed for the university as our model for screening candidates for the ministry. Also, to get into most seminaries, you first need a college degree, a double witness to the evil of the day. The seminary is bureaucratic. It follows the model of all the other modern certification institutions. In law, medicine, and theology, the older training system of apprenticeship has been replaced by the classroom lecture and the formal written examination. This move from personalism to impersonalism has been a universal phenomenon, one that reflects the impersonalism of Newtonian thought. The cosmic personalism of creationism has been replaced by the cosmic impersonalism of mechanism. To gain autonomy for scientific man, the modern world has paid a dear price. But God is still on his throne. Today, the decentralization of technology is making possible the overcoming of the existing bureaucratic educational system. When we can put 1,000 volumes of books on a plastic disc, CD-ROM, that costs about $2 to reproduce, and then use a four-pound portable computer to search any word or combination of words on those thousand volumes within a few seconds, the end of the old education is in sight. It is simply too expensive. Today, the entire verbal and visual content of seminary education can be put on videotape. Eventually, it will be on CD-ROM discs. A few courses, such as biblical languages, need classroom instruction. But since the teaching of these languages is basically a charade, little is lost by relying on electronic teaching. A year after graduation, few pastors retain more than a crib note, Bagster's Helps, knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. How many pastors still use Greek and Hebrew Bibles to do their sermon preparation? About as high a percentage as American PhDs who keep up with their German and French. At least in this case, we know what is to be done. Covenantal Evangelism The continuing disintegration of the churches in our day points to a failure of evangelism and church planting in this century. Why has everything we seem to have tried failed to make a dent in today's humanist civilization? Why has revivalism failed time after time? Why has church discipline almost ceased to exist? Why have the churches not dominated evangelism, leaving it instead to the parachurch ministries? Where have the churches gone wrong? I contend that we have failed to understand the five-point biblical covenant model. 1. Transcendence Presence 2. Hierarchy Representation 3. Law Ethics 4. Oath Judgment and 5. Inheritance Continuity How should this model be applied to the church? More to the point, how should the modern church be reconstructed in order that it might conform better to this five-point model? We have had many competing models of church government, independency, Presbyterian committees, Episcopalian and Methodist personalism, Pentecostal personalism. All of them have failed to produce what the Bible says is mandatory, dominion by covenant. We need to solve the problems of the one and the many. 
coherent church order with individual initiative, international strategy with local tactics. How can we do it? I believe that a fundamental flaw exists in contemporary church order, one which would lead to a military defeat if the same flaw existed in an army, or to bankruptcy in a business. There is no agreed-upon strategy of conquest, no integration of dispersed efforts, no Bible-based performance standards, and above all, no system of pinpointing personal responsibility for actual performance in the field. The Principle of the Four Corners I believe that the principle of the four corners is perhaps the most neglected strategic principle in the Bible. We are told that a river went out of Eden, downhill, obviously, indicating that Eden was a mountain, to water the garden, where it became four rivers, Genesis 2.10. We are also told that there are four corners of the earth, a phrase which I freely confess I do not believe is to be taken literally. Quote, and he shall set up an ensign, banner, for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. End quote. Isaiah 11.12 In Numbers 15.38, there is a requirement that all Hebrews wear robes. The New King James Version translates this verse more clearly than the King James. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. Corners? On robes? Surely this is symbolic. There is only one sensible way to interpret this. They wore four tassels on their robes. These garments were to hang so as to make the garments symbolically like the four corners of a house. In principle, these garments were like the four corners of the world. Why four corners? to indicate the task of God-given worldwide conquest. Maps are structured in terms of four corners and four primary directions. The four corners reflect the symbolic structure of the rivers of Eden, which pointed to worldwide dominion. Those four rivers flowed out to the four corners of the earth. Adam and his family were to go out from the garden in all four directions, progressively subduing the earth to the glory of God. Targeting the Cities Evangelism is the historical and institutional basis of continuity across time and geography. It is man's part of the two-part contribution to the continuity of church and culture. The other part is the Holy Spirit's program of coercive discontinuities. Without the proclamation of the gospel, this world would be lost to Satan. A positive program of evangelism is necessary to defeat Satan. Because of original sin, Satan wins by default. Where the gospel is not proclaimed, men automatically perish. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The missionary is the church's point man, in a long-term strategy of spiritual and cultural conquest. Where does the original missionary come from? Who sends him? Under whose authority does he operate? These are difficult organizational questions. Most important, who finances him? A mother congregation? the National Missions Organization, a combination of financial support and judicial authority over him. Financing will heavily influence the structure of authority. It always does. If he wants re relative independence to build locally, he had better begin with financial independence. This is what Paul taught. This is why he was a tent maker. Acts 18.3 Probably the best way to achieve this is for the pastor and his wife to set up a local daycare center. 
This will finance them, and it will create initial contacts in the community. Then, as the local church grows, the pastor spends more time pastorally. The wife carries on with the day care center, making a decent income. I help people do this as a missionary venture. The missionary needs a long-term strategy. This is the Four Corners strategy. The churches have long ignored this Four Corners principle of outreach. I need to outline it. Quadrants. Let us begin with the case of a single missionary to a particular city or town. The missionary takes the map of the city and divides it into four sections by drawing the familiar crosshairs of telescopic sights on rifles. He scopes out the city. His long-range goal is nothing less than the systematic conquest of that city. He begins by setting up quadrants. Everything on that map is under God judicially. Everything is to be brought under God historically. This is comprehensive geographical evangelism. He then sets up Bible studies, one in each section of the city, if he can possibly do it. He doesn't ignore any area. Most cities have certain races or income groups in particular quadrants. No group, no race, no class is outside of Christ's jurisdiction. This is why the city must be self-consciously divided into quadrants by the missionary. There must be a plan. The missionary's next major goal is to establish a church in each of the four sections of the city. He uses local Bible studies to recruit people. He may also bring in other missionaries to set up daycare centers in other quadrants. He acknowledges that he is a limited creature. He needs to make use of the division of labor in order to conquer the city for Christ. One local church per quadrant is hardly sufficient. Therefore, he needs to reproduce himself covenantally. How does he do this? By recruiting and discipling men to become pastors in each of the four quadrants. In each quadrant, he hopes to establish at least one church. But this is only the beginning. Each of the churches in the four quadrants must plan a similar program of conquest inside its quadrant. From the day any church is begun, its goal must be to launch a minimum of three other churches in its quadrant. Then each of these churches targets its newly designated quadrant. There has to be a plan. Once the first church becomes legally independent of the mother church's umbrella, if any, the missionary has become a pastor. He sits down with the heads of households in his congregation and tells them that it is his goal to equip at least three other men to become pastors of their own local congregations. They must meet the criteria of 1 Timothy 3, be married men or widowers, be hospitable, etc., as he recruits and trains elders, he identifies those who might be capable of becoming pastors. He selects them and trains these few for the pastorate, but with this proviso. Each of them must begin his own Bible study, either in the local quadrant or across the city in a yet unevangelized quadrant. This is why pastoral training must be decentralized, computerized, and personalized. We must return to the original ideal of apprenticeship, a pastor is best trained by a person in his own city who has a vision for that city. The training must be geared to the specific needs of that city. We need specialization. A quadrant is a local church's parish. Each new pastor's goal is to repeat this process internally in his quadrant. This must be agreed to well in advance. The long-term goal is to have every person in the city worshiping weekly in a local congregation of some Trinitarian denomination. 
Nothing less than this meets the minimum requirements of the Great Commission. Any program of church planting that settles for less than this is a victim of pessimillennialism. Today, they all are. No more megachurches. This means that no local congregation should be larger than about 400 members. A local church that is larger than this is not dividing in order to evangelize its quadrant. As soon as a church hits 200 members, it should begin planning a congregational division. Members must be approached and asked to move to the new congregation when it is launched. Each member must regard himself from the beginning as part of God's spiritual army of conquest. He is not to see his membership as passive. He is not there to be entertained. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a biblical substitute for the theater, no matter how successful modern ecclesiastical entertainment centers appear to be today, when there is no crisis. Entertainment churches will not survive a major crisis unless they become serious. Such churches would not have made it during the bubonic plague in 1348-50, and they will not survive God's coming negative sanctions to serve as base camps for subsequent Christian reconstruction. The ecclesiastical goal is clear. We must abandon the modern bureaucratic ideal of the megachurch entertainment center, which has too many problems in continuity when the church's ringmaster-pastor leaves, retires, dies, or runs off with the choir director's teenage daughter. The modern megachurch concentrates Christian resources too much, especially human resources. While a large, well-equipped building is legitimate for the occasional multi-congregational services in the region, it should not be a permanent local church. In between common services, it should function as a regional Christian high school, into which feeder schools can send their graduates. In 1986, a study of membership growth in Brazilian churches revealed this fact. The smaller the member-to-leader ratio, the faster the growth. The Assemblies of God had a 50-to-1 ratio, while Lutherans were at 1,000-to-1. The Roman Catholics were 9,000-to-1. Organic analogies are dangerous unless they are governed by the principles of biblical covenantalism. This analogy is... The church's goal is to imitate the amoeba. An amoeba does not die, it just divides. These new units then divide. Then they also divide. The species multiplies within its host. The churches need to do something very similar. Eventually, modern humanist culture will develop a terminal case of Trinitarian intestinal flu, Augustine's revenge. Bishops the process of church planting is repeated until each of the city's quadrants is saturated. The initial goal is to create clusters of four local congregations per city, each with its own pastor. Above each cluster of four is a senior pastor, or bishop, presbyter, but always under the authority of the whole denomination. Bishops must not be legally independent of the denomination's general assembly, which must include laymen. I know the word bishop terrifies independents and Presbyterians. They equate the office with sacerdotalism. The fact is, the office of bishop is inescapable, as inescapable as a single captain of a ship. In the independent churches, the local pastor is first among equals. Any Baptist pastor who is not strong enough to give primary direction to his deacons is a soon-to-be-dismissed pastor. A new man will be brought in, and this man becomes first among equals. For want of a better name, let us call this the Spurgeon Effect.
The office of bishop is inevitable in Presbyterian churches, too. It is just not called by that loathed name. Three-office Presbyterianism, teaching elder, ruling elder, and deacon, makes this office inescapable. Ruling elders are not allowed to offer the sacraments apart from the teaching elders. A Presbyterian pastor answers to the presbytery, not to the local congregation. He has a seminary degree. His elders do not. The disciplinary system is more academic and bureaucratic than pastoral, but it is surely hierarchical. The Presbyterian pastor becomes a bishop operationally, but instead of answering to another bishop, he answers to a series of committees. He is a pastor without a pastor. Above the local congregation, Presbyterian rule becomes impersonal, and speedy justice is institutionally unobtainable. If Presbyterian committees would each appoint a representative foreman who could make decisions in the name of the committee, yet remain subject to oversight by the committee, this complaint would not be valid, but these foremen would then be bishops. The goal is to create a judicial system in which quick decisions by pastors is encouraged, the goal of speedy justice, Exodus 18, but always with the denomination's general assembly, which includes laymen, in the wings, to hear appeals. No individual gets a final word. Thus, the organizational goal is to escape all three of the traditional ecclesiastical evils, local one-man rule, sacerdotal episcopacy, and bureaucracy. The Principle of Decentralization Christ is the head of the church. There is no institution that can function without a personal living head. The church is described as a body with many members, but with a sovereign head. Each member has specialized skills, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. All are to be put to use to serve God. The integration of these skills is achieved through a covenant with a sovereign God through his ordained representatives. God authorizes three institutions with three covenants, church, family, and state. God decentralizes through multiple covenants. God, being omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, can afford to allow self-government to men and angels. God is not dependent on his subordinates, so he has the ability to delegate responsibility. Because he is absolutely sovereign, he can safely delegate partial sovereignty to his representatives. This is the great mystery of God's sovereignty. God is totally sovereign, yet he delegates authority. Those under his authority are responsible to him. Satan, in contrast, imposes only one covenant, he imitates God's sovereignty, but he cannot imitate it to the extent that he can afford to decentralize. He imitates it as a creature must, centralizing power rather than delegating it. Satan's system of control is a top-down bureaucracy. It has to be. He is not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. He has to rely on his subordinates to provide him with information and to execute his commands. Yet they are all liars and rebels, just as he himself is a liar and a rebel. He has to manage incompetence, so he must use terror and coercion to achieve his goals. This is why Satan's model is always the state, which has the power of the sword of life and death. Satan's attempt at God's cosmic personalism results in the personalism of the tyrant who seeks to sub substitute his will for the will of his subordinates. Satan is a rebel against lawful authority. So are his followers. He therefore dares not allow his subordinates freedom, 
he must control them from the top down, which means that Satan's system of rule is power-oriented, not ethics-oriented. He exercises power in history through terror. God exercises power through service. Jesus Christ is the archetype servant in history. Satan is the archetype tyrant and terrorist. Thus, Satan has to centralize power. He could govern his hierarchy in no other way. Initiative remains at the distant top. How can Christians conduct an organized campaign of cultural conquest without becoming either a scattered occupation force or a top-down bureaucracy? Only by honoring the principle of decentralization, meaning local initiative with a bottom-up appeals court for settling disputes. This means that Christians must also honor the principle of lawful jurisdiction. Each institution, as well as each individual, has an exclusive God-given area of lawful authority. To violate these boundaries is to invite tyranny. If government begins with self-government under God, then Christian churches must start honoring each other's discipline. Pagan civil governments have mutual extradition treaties to deal with criminals who escape across borders. There is a great need for such arrangements. Churches, unfortunately, have yet to think through the implications of church discipline in a world of competing denominations. Churches must recognize each other's excommunications. If the excommunicated member can walk across the street and join another God-ordained church, then God's judgments against individuals in history is thwarted. He therefore goes to stage two, collective, corporate judgment in history. We read of this in Deuteronomy 28:15 to 68 It is not pleasant reading. Churches that refuse to honor each other's excommunications are like people who would try to stop a series of little earthquakes when the only alternative is a truly massive earthquake later on. Oath and Government We must begin with this premise. The institutional church is a lawful government. It possesses lawful authority to administer an oath, which only the institutions of the family and civil government lawfully share. The covenant oath is always self-maledictory. The individual promises to uphold the terms of the covenant, and if he fails to do so, he calls down upon himself the negative sanctions of God, including those lawfully administered through lawful human government. God grants this authority to invoke and demand an oath only to families, churches, and civil governments. The sanctions of each institution are different. Families apply the rod, corporal punishment short of execution. Civil governments apply the sword, corporal punishment including execution, and churches restrict access to the communion table, excommunication. This church oath involves the visible sign of baptism, because it possesses the lawful authority to cut people off from the Lord's Supper, it is a government. Because it is a government, it possesses an institutional system for adjudicating disputes among local members and between members and members in other congregations and denominations. Here is where the breakdown in church order has become obvious, and has been obvious for centuries, but churches pay no attention. The gangs of Los Angeles do much better. Conclusion We have a tremendous opportunity today. We are seeing the death of a major faith salvation through politics. While the rhetoric of the imminent transnational New World Order is escalating, the economic vulnerability of all government welfare programs becomes more and more visible. 
the reality of modern political life does not match the reality any more than the reality of Roman political life in the 3rd century A.D. matched the messianic announcements on the coinage. Reality will soon triumph. Humanism as a rival religion is breaking down even as it asserts the apotheosis of the new humanity. Something must be put in its place. There is no neutrality. There can be no covenantal vacuums. The gangs of Los Angeles testify loudly to this. The church, however, is not equally confident about this. Christians look at the religion of humanism as if it were unbeatable. They have forgotten what God does each time in history when covenant-breaking men begin building the latest Tower of Babel. They no longer believe in God's negative corporate sanctions in history. Churches today are not prepared for the coming of mass revival, theologically, institutionally, financially, educationally, or morally. If we get a mass revival, new converts will inevitably ask, how should we then live? If this new life in Christ is defined as meet, eat, retreat, and had a gospel tract, the revival will leave one more egg on the face of God's church. None of this is perceived by the churches, which are not ready for revival. Yet revival may come nonetheless. If it does, we will see the most remarkable example of on-the-job training since the early church gathered in Jerusalem to meet, eat, and wait for the Holy Spirit to put them to work. They were waiting to receive power, Acts 1.8. Today's church is waiting for late-night reruns of Ozzie and Harriet. If revival comes, millions of new converts will ask, Now what should we do? What will pastors tell them? Pray while you're plowing the fields. Hardly. Ours is not a frontier wilderness. The division of international labor is the most developed in mankind's history. Platitudes will not suffice. Yet platitudes are all that Bible-believing Christians have offered mankind for a century. Christians have rejected biblical law, so all they can do is baptize the prevailing humanism. But baptized humanism will not suffice next time. Humanism is too clearly bankrupt. What is to be done? Solomon told us three millennia ago. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12:13-14. Jesus told us two millennia ago, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. John 15:10. The churches have not listened. They need to. Soon. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.